This is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Garrett Goolsby, and I'm talking with Stella Morabito about her book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. Stella has been a senior contributor to The Federalist since 2014 and served for a decade as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, where she focused on communist media, propaganda, and disinformation. Hey, Stella, it's great to have you on today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Garrett. So I think it might be helpful in talking about your book for us to start off by giving, if you could give us like a working definition of what do you mean by the weaponization of loneliness? What does that term mean to you? Well, what it means is the exploitation of our very human vulnerability um, to uh, shirk or to, to be fearful of ostracism or social rejection. And uh, that's because, you know, as human beings, we're social animals and we're hardwired to connect with other people. We can't really survive in isolation. And uh, the flip side of that is that we, uh, you know, we're, uh, we have kind of a primal fear of being ostracized. So that really, um, that's a huge vulnerability uh, that can be exploited by tyrants uh, who can use it to shut us up, uh, you know, to, you know, provoke that uh, conformity impulse that gets us to comply with agendas that are destructive and uh, and then, you know, it, it has a snowball effect of isolating us even further. I mean, we think we're getting relief when we comply, but um, yet only socially uh, creates a much worse environment for free speech and uh, expression. So what got you writing about this topic? Was there a specific thing you witnessed, maybe in the media or read about in history, that... Um, that got you interested in this? Is this something you've been thinking about for a long time? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, sure, yeah. I've been thinking about it for a real long time. I mean, I, I, I kind of, uh, in my prologue, I talk about how I first started taking mental notes of the effects of ostracism on the, you know, in the schoolyard. And, and uh, but I've never lost an interest in these psychological dynamics, and I think they're really critical to understanding where we are today as a society, because um, you know, with the shutdown or the, the attempted shutdown of free speech, um, you know, means that we can't really develop relationships. And that's, uh, you know, critical to, uh, you know, the survival of freedom. But what got me interested, uh, again, um, you know, I, I, um, you know, I studied Russian and Soviet history. Uh, after I got my bachelor's in journalism, I got a master's degree in Russian and Soviet history. And, you know, when you, when you look at the, you know, the reign of terror, of Stalin's reign of terror, and reading about it, and how people were actually preempting the, the fear of being accused of being, you know, an enemy of the people, they would start accusing other people just out of fear that, if they didn't do that, they would be accused themselves. And so it can reach a mass hysteria that is extremely dangerous. And I just felt compelled to write about it, because even though we instinctively understand that, oh, we don't want to say something because we're afraid, you know, you know it, it won't go over well, or that will, you know, be rejected, uh, if, if, if the snowball effect is allowed to continue, you get to the point where we are today, and we don't want it to go any further. So I, I felt um, the need to kind of provide or try to put together some kind of blueprint for helping us become a whole lot more conscious of these dynamics, because these patterns play out through history. 
and it, they're very dangerous. Gotcha. And so you, you touched on the history a little bit, and that's one of the things you kind of, you preempted me. That's something I wanted to get to. Um, you explained a little bit of the history of that uh, using isolation to enforce the power of the book. Um, but is this something that we can see examples of even further back than, say, you know, Soviet Russia? Is this something that's been around forever, using isolation, that is, to... Uh, to well, you know, I, I think probably it has, you know, with, you know, people have that totalitarian impulse. Uh, uh, whether they're conscious of it or not, they seem to understand instinctively that the way to control people is to isolate them. But you can go back in modern history to the French Revolution, and and uh, you see a lot of the same phenomena we see today. I, I talk about the machinery of loneliness in my book, uh, the things that kind of trigger that conformity impulse, that fear of rejection or fear of being attacked. And um, so if you look at the French Revolution, you, you see identity politics in there. You know, you've got the, the counter-revolutionaries who are, uh, you know, who are attacked by, and you've got the mob agitation. So identity politics um, plays into things, you know, it goes way back, and, and, uh, and so does political correctness, you know, that's induced self-censorship out of the fear of, of being tagged or labeled. And all of these things depend on, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the main component of all of these things is demonization. And that's really critical. I mean, being labeled, uh, you know, back then as a counter-revolutionary or, you know, uh, in favor of something that went against the narrative or, uh, you know, any of those things today, it's like bigot, hater, some sort of, quote, phobia, transphobe, you know, they come up with all kinds of terms, just just um, what Robert J. Lifton called mind-terminating uh, cliches. Um, and, and, you know, another one is conspiracy theorists. If you try to connect the dots and try to understand things, they'll call you conspiracy theorists. Now we've got election denier. The list just goes on and on and on. They will not engage in the arguments, of course. It's all about shutting down the argument, shutting down debate. And we really need to get a handle on that. And uh, that's why I wrote the book. So has the way that politicians do this changed at all from how it was done in the examples you've talked about historically? Do we use isolation in the same way that is, is it just different names we're putting on things or are we doing it any differently? Yeah, well, you know, the uh, the methods um are pretty much the same in in terms of like the smear campaigns demonization and all of that but of course with today you know a mob can take different forms uh you know you always had uh the french revolution or some of these other utopian revolutions you had street mobs and mao mao zedong used the red guard mobs to enforce uh, conformity but uh, of course, today we've got all these technological uh, communications, uh, you know, the Internet and, and the social media. And so you've got mobs taking forms on social media. You can, you can get a mob in a, in a human resources department that shuts you down if you think the wrong thing about, what, you know, you think something or say something politically incorrect. You can have mobs in in uh you know just just about any venue so uh but 
um, the Internet <clears throat> has exponentially uh, increased uh, and, and changed the various uh, ways in which mobs operate and, and made them a whole lot more toxic, I think, uh, to uh, public discourse and civil society. Could you give us a specific example, maybe, about why isolation is so lonely or uh, is is so deadly to us? You mentioned a few stories in your book. One I remember particularly is the story of Jeannie, the little little girl who was in isolation. Yeah. Could you um, could you expound on that a little bit, just to give our listeners a little bit of uh, a picture for what what is the danger exactly of uh, isolation that that we feel? Oh yeah, well yeah, that had a, a big impact on me. That story. Um, it was about a, a a child who was confined to a dim back bedroom by her father for twelve years from the time she was an infant, and uh, when she was finally discovered, uh, she was basically feral. Uh, she couldn't. Uh, she all of her senses were numbed as well, and isolation is like I said before. You can't survive. Now that's an extreme form. Uh, you know, it's an example of severe social isolation. Uh, and, uh, but it does show us how, uh, how deadly it is or how damaging it is for a human being. Um, social isolation is also traced to all kinds of mental, um, you know, uh, disabilities, mental and uh, emotional breakdowns uh, and, you know, schizophrenia, psychosis, uh, but also physical ailments. Uh, we, we know the documentation is in that uh, it exacerbates, um, you know, the stress of social isolation uh, can result in early onset dementia. It can result in uh, heart disease and and you know all kinds of uh, stressors for strokes and uh, and so on. So I think we that's probably built into our hardware need to connect. I believe personally that we are created for communion with each other and communion with God. But um, you know that. But all of these effects, these really damaging effects of isolation, uh, create, I think, uh, an instinctive fear of of isolation. And that, as I, I go right back to how easily that can be exploited for, you know, to push bad, really destructive agendas forward. For those of you that are just tuning in, this is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Garrett Goolsby, and I'm talking to Sela Morabito about her book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. So one of the things that I would really like to know is, are politicians and leaders aware that they've weaponized loneliness? Is this something they do knowingly, or is it sort of an outgrowth of them attempting to accomplish their goals? Is it a, is it a symptom, or are they using it as a tool consciously? Well, I, I as I was saying... I don't know how conscious, uh, you know, tyrants and totalitarians and even, you know, even supposedly well-meaning politicians are of, uh, you know, how um, easily they can be exploited or how much they actually do the exploiting. Uh, I think that the the goals uh, haven't really changed of these, uh, you know, destructive agendas, these uh, radical utopian goals uh, that they tend to 
promote or, or, or claim to believe in, and the methods haven't really changed. But are they conscious of it? Um, I, you know, I don't know what exact, you know, what kind of example you're thinking of. Are the, are the exploiters conscious of it? I think definitely some of them are. They know very well that isolation is necessary for control, for, uh, you know, complete control. Uh, and then those who are actually exploited, do they understand? Like, for example, I believe that uh, those 12 uh, Republicans who went along with the so-called Respect for Marriage Act last week in the Senate, uh, I believe that a lot of them just were fearful of being called uh, mean names. Uh, they didn't want to... They, 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 that, that whole conformity impulse uh, clicked in uh, with them. And so I don't think they're really conscious. I think that we really need um, a major effort to make more people conscious of these dynamics and, and how they operate within us and, and what a bad effect they have on society at large and civil society. What are you hoping that your reader will get out of this book? Is it is it just awareness, or is there action we can take to fight against the weaponization of loneliness? Yes. Well, I, yeah, I do believe that there is. Uh, there are a lot of things that we can do as individuals, uh, even in our, especially in our own private sphere of life. And in fact, uh, that's one point that I I should have emphasized is that the private sphere of life, family, faith. Uh, you know, communities uh, that are true communities, friendships, all of these mediating institutions, as we call them, because they're buffer zones between the mass state and the individual, all of those are really what's under attack. It's the private sphere of life uh, at, that has always been under attack um, to, you know, to, to render us uh, more powerless by not having those strong bonds with others that make us less dependent on, uh, you know, on the state. So um, what can we do? Uh, it's really an asymmetric psychological war that we're dealing with uh, when it comes to these dyna- dynamics. Uh, so um, it's never going to happen in the corrupted institutions uh, in, uh, you know, the media or education or, you know, academia. The, these things, with the exception, of course, of parallel institutions like Hillsdale College, but, um, but you know, on the mainstream, uh, none of these things are really going to happen. Uh, it's really an asymmetric war, and I think that we really need to take a page from Václav Havel's essay, The Power of the Powerless. He was the, um, you know, the dissident in Soviet Czechoslovakia, who, uh, a playwright who later, after the Berlin Wall fell, um, you know, became president of the Czech Republic. Well, he wrote that amazing essay in 1978 called The Power of the Powerless, where he talks about, writes about how it is really this hidden sphere of life where all the power is, uh, where we can, uh, you know, speak to one another uh, truthfully and openly, and we have to reach out locally in our own sphere and and promote this truth-telling. Uh, and those of us who, you know, can take, you know, everybody has a different threshold for whatever they perceive the risks involved are, but to try to rekindle connections uh, locally. I mean, you know, there's so many things people can do locally that uh, can make a difference, and even just in their daily life. Uh, 
And I discussed that in the wrench in the machinery of loneliness in my last chapter. But we have to start creating these parallel policies, these parallel institutions that, um, you know, that we can do through, you know, one on, beginning with one-on-one conversation. Um, you know, that's where propaganda ends, as Jacques Hillel wrote, where simple dialogue begins. And as Havel said, this is where, you know, we get that ripple effect uh, is through that private sphere, and then it ripples outward into society at large if more and more people are willing to, uh, you know, understand that free speech is a use-it-or-lose-it proposition, and we're just going to lose all of our freedom uh, if we can't uh, speak out, if we don't speak out. So what I, what I hear you saying is that it, is, it starts with the individual, it starts with the family, and then the broader community does that mean that there is basically no hope for American public life to be saved from this phenomenon? Or um, do you think it's possible that should we succeed in at, at the individual level that this could uh, perhaps resurrect American public life from, from being something that is weaponized against us? Oh, yeah, no, that, I think that's really the only way, and I, and I don't think there's no hope, absolutely not, no. I, I, I just think that if we can get a handle on this and if we can build the kind of awareness that begins with people who, you know, understand this sort of thing and, and also people who have strong bonds to fall back on, those are the people who really have to lead the way because those who are already isolated and disconnected, there's so much brokenness in society with family and faith and everything. Uh, so it, it'll pretty much fall on those who, who uh, you know, have the strength to lead and, and, and you know, build a, a greater awareness and start building these parallel policies. I mean, if you have time, I, I did discuss uh, in, in my last chapter the effects of discussion groups. I piloted a book club a few years ago in a Washington suburb on this theme, on these themes of isolation, political correctness, and and identity politics and the mobs and how they affect us. And we, there's so much great, there's so many great books that are, don't deal with it directly necessarily, but on propaganda and stuff that, that really help people. Uh, there was like uh, pressure valves exploding in the room when we'd start talking about our personal experiences dealing with these things. And, you know, if discussion groups like that were to pop up, I mean, even movies, multimedia, uh, you know, bibliography, um, it, it would be great. Uh, I, I intend to put one together um, that would help people start really seeing how, how these dynamics play out. Um, you know, I think it, it's extremely helpful because then after you see them play out, you can't unsee it. And with our little discussion group book club, uh, we, you know, that helped build the strength uh, for a lot of us to, to resist that very powerful urge to self-censor. So, you know, things like that can, uh, you know, help build awareness as well. Well, we are just about out of time. I really appreciate the time you've taken for us today to come and, uh, and talk about your book. 
thank you very much for having me. And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, really critical that we understand how important uh, the private sphere of life is and how it has to be protected and how it's under attack. And, and we have to also understand how damaging uh, self-censorship can be in, you know, polluting the public sphere. So thank you so much for having me, Garrett. I really enjoyed talking to you. You just heard from Stella Morabito, author of The Weaponization of Loneliness. Thanks for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. <laughs>